Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, welcome back. I'm Chris, the pastor of Compass. As always, I am really glad that you're with me today. Now, a couple of years ago, I was confronted by some of the people who are on my team, and they were millennials. Now, apparently, I had said something that hurt their feelings, or rather, I texted something that hurt their feelings. What did I text? Well, They messaged me, and because I wanted them to know that I'd seen their message, I replied by saying, K. Now, in my defense, I hate it when people leave me on red, and not wanting to do that to someone else, I would regularly respond with a K so that they knew I'd seen their message. Now, if you're Gen X or older, you may not know this, but replying with a K is one of the rudest and most aggressive things you can do in a text, apparently. And so a little while later, they told me that they thought I was mad at them because of all the Ks that I'd sent them. They said it literally felt like being slapped in the face. Now, to me, I was just communicating that I'd got your message. But to them, I was passively, aggressively saying, you're doing a bad job and I'm mad at you. I was communicating at the surface level, but they were reading the subtext of what they thought I was saying. And just for the record, older folks, today the thumbs up emoji is the new K, so don't use it. I just typically will send a flamenco dancer or a blue eyeball emoji just so I can be safe. But we all use subtext. We say things without saying them. We mean something different than what we're saying. There's the text, and then below it, there's the subtext. So for example, if I ask you if you want some gum, what might you hear? You might hear that I have some gum that I'm willing to share, or you might hear, your breath is terrible, so either eat this gum or go brush your teeth, you disgusting and repulsive person. There's the text and the subtext. I may just think I'm being nice by sharing, while you may think I'm being mean by saying that you have a rancid mouth. Jesus used subtext a lot. He used it in his storytelling. Uh, He used it when he was answering his disciples' questions. And as we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 21, we're going to see Jesus using subtext to confront the corruption of the temple, and more specifically now, its priests and leaders. And as we look at the subtext of Jesus, we may learn some things about God and ourselves. And so today we're going to start in Matthew 21 verse 23. When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Now, the day before all of this had happened, Jesus had been in the temple and he flipped over the tables of the money changers. Uh, He brought lame and blind people into the temple in violation of the rules and tradition. And he basically told the priests that they were opposing God. But here, as he returns the next day, the priests and temple leaders, they're ready for him. And they immediately confront him by asking where he thinks he got the authority to do all of these things. This is a good question, because if they could get Jesus to say where his authority came from, there were going to be consequences. If he said his authority came from God, they could accuse him of blasphemy. For Jesus to claim authority over the temple, he would be putting himself above both the temple and Jewish scriptures. On the other hand, if he said his authority didn't come from God, he might lose the support of the people. This was a typical trick question that was meant to force Jesus into a losing position, no matter how he answered. So what would Jesus say? Well, let's look in verse 24. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. 
if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? So in response to the trick question of the priests and the elders, Jesus hits back with a trick question of his own. He says, you want to know where my authority comes from? Well, I'll tell you if you tell me. Where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Now, this would seem like a simple question with a simple answer when you realize that the religious leaders absolutely hated John the Baptist. They hated him because he taught that people needed to repent and be baptized as a way to turn back to God rather than embracing the temple system, which John was also strongly critical of. They also hated John because he was kind of a jerk to them. Look at John chapter 3-7. This is about John the Baptist. When he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. So Pharisees and Sadducees, I mean, these were the most respected men in Israel. And here, in front of a crowd of people, John called them a brood of snakes. Just so you know, that's not a way to win friends and influence people. And John was not a friend of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They clearly did not believe he got his authority from God. He was a troublemaker, he was probably a heretic, and he was not a prophet sent by God. But even though they didn't think John was a prophet, the people did, which put the religious leaders in a bind over John the Baptist's spiritual authority. Let's jump ahead to verse 26. So they talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he'll ask us why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people believed John was a prophet. And so they finally replied, we don't know. Like, obviously, John wasn't sent by God. But if we say that, the people are going to get upset because they thought John was a prophet. And the crowd will turn on us. But if we say that John was sent by God, then Jesus will call us out because we didn't believe what John said. And so here you have the religious leaders. They're stuck between saying what they believed to be true and losing the support of the people or saying what they didn't believe and being caught by Jesus. Now, there's a really important thing that I want to point out in all of this, and that's the fact that the priests and elders were willing to say something that they didn't believe in order to keep the crowds with them. The chief priests and elders, they considered lying to Jesus about what they thought of John. And the fact that they debated among themselves whether to say John's authority was from God or whether it was merely human, it betrayed the reality that they didn't really care about what they thought was true. Their instinct was just to win the argument and gain an advantage over Jesus. If they cared about the truth, on principle alone, they would have said that John's authority was human and then just let the chips fall. But they didn't care about truth or principle or integrity. They cared about their power and position. So much so that they didn't even think twice about lying if it meant they would keep power and Jesus would lose it. And that was their subtext. What they said without saying it. That they had a willingness to say anything to get ahead. But that wasn't uncommon. Here, look at Matthew twenty-two fifteen. another example of it. It says, then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You're impartial and don't play favorites. 
Okay, the Pharisees didn't think Jesus was honest or that he taught the way of God truthfully. The Pharisees thought that Jesus was demon-possessed. But, just like the priests in the temple, they said things they didn't believe in order to manipulate circumstances so that they held power and Jesus lost power. Because at the end of the day, that's what they really believed in. They believed in the power of wealth, prestige, honor, and religious authority. What they believed about John didn't even matter. They'd flip-flop on that in a second if they thought that they would get ahead. Now look at Jesus' reply in verse 27. Jesus responded, Well, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus, he just refuses to answer their question. I wonder what Jesus would have said if they'd answered his question honestly. Would he have corrected them? Would he have gently guided them to the truth? Would he have told them that they were close to the kingdom of God? Well, we'll never know because Jesus didn't engage with them that way. Because they were disingenuous and hypocritical, Jesus gave them nothing. Well, except for one thing. He gave them some subtext of his own. Check this out. Why did Jesus ask them about John the Baptist? Was it because John was a great prophet or because the people believed in him? Was it because Jesus knew it would trip up the priests and elders? I mean, all of those things were true. I mean, all of those things were the text on the surface of what Jesus asked. But his question really isn't about John. It's about himself. Look at what John thought about Jesus in Mark 1, 7 through 8. John announced, Someone's coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John knew that he was preparing the way for the one that God was sending to bring the kingdom of heaven into the world. And he was looking for that person, the anointed of God. It, it's what his whole ministry was about. And now look at this in Matthew chapter 3. It goes further. It says, Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. This is important because it means that John the Baptist endorsed Jesus. He believed Jesus was God's anointed one. And now the text on the surface of Jesus' question was, what do you believe about John? But the subtext of Jesus' question was, what do you believe about me? If John's authority came from heaven and John endorsed me as God's anointed one, what are you going to do with that? Right, that's the same. What do you believe about Jesus? If you're a Christian or a church person, you might say, he's the son of God. Uh, he's my savior and Lord. But if there's anything we've learned from the religious leaders, it's that when it comes to God, there can be a gap between our text and our subtext which means there's a reality we need to confront in our lives. And that reality is this. What you say you believe about Jesus isn't necessarily what you believe about Jesus. The text of your life may not always be true, but the subtext is. Your subtext always tells the truth about what you really believe. And the tragedy of that 
is that when there's a spiritual gap between what we say and what we really believe, that gap makes it impossible for us to engage with Jesus in any meaningful way. The text of your life may loudly say you follow Jesus, while the subtext of your life says you live to worship yourself. And the gap between those two things becomes the gap between us and God. The religious leaders, they didn't care about John or Jesus or discovering what God was doing in the world. They cared about what they wanted. Their text, it said they lived for God, but their subtext said they were living for themselves. And in light of that, I think we need to ask ourselves, what is the subtext of my life saying? Is there a gap between what I believe and how I live? I mean, I say I love Jesus, but do I live out his way of being in the world? Do I love God with my whole heart? Do I love my neighbor and treat others the way I want to be treated? Do I live a sacrificial and crucified life of putting myself and my desires last so I can put others first, so I can put God's desires first? Do I live like I want thy kingdom to come or like I want my kingdom to come? I know it's easy for us to identify people whose text says Jesus, but whose subtext says something completely different. But what about you? What does your subtext say about what you really believe about Jesus? If you examined your life, would you say that you care for the needs of the hurting and, and marginalized? That you value and nurture genuine relationships in your church community? That you really care about your kids knowing and loving God? And that your priorities are kingdom priorities and not personal priorities? What do people really see when you send out a Jesus emoji? Does the message of your life say I live for God or that I live for myself? These are deeply personal questions and each of us may have different answers. <clears throat> but we need to ask these questions. We need to ask God to show us the gaps in our lives and maybe even ask the people who are closest to us. But my prayer is that whatever God shows us that we respond to him in truth seeing our gaps and allowing him to close them. I don't want to live in such a way that I can't engage with Jesus in any meaningful way because my text and my subtext don't line up. And I don't want that for you either. So may we be people who live in constant evaluation of what we say and what we mean, what we believe and how we live. And as we do, May God close the gaps and may we truly live out the kingdom of God in our world. Thank you for joining me and I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. <laughs>